Yeah, this is not uh, not ideal sound for a podcast. Sound like Mike Tyson. Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week it is an off-season mailbag where we answer your questions and make sure that we get you the info that you need while everyone's sheltered at home. The Rams unveiled new uniforms, and it looks like they left a dirty sock in with the jersey. And here with me this week to announce his new Peloton-sponsored YouTube channel, it's David Newman. <laughs> uh, back to those Rams jerseys. Dear God, those are terrible. No, I'm not letting you off the hook here. So the, for, for those on. of you that cannot see Newman right now, he's got the man bun because he's so, I mean, he's just divine with his hair. But he's got this Peloton branded shirt on and it, it fits him quite nicely. And all I'm saying is the man looks like he could be a fitness model right now. Uh, I mean, as long as we, you know, keep it basically from the Peloton on the shirt up and we don't look too much too closely at what's <laughs> happening, happening below there for sure. But hey, it's a free shirt. All right. You know? While we're on the topic of uh, critiquing fashion, let's talk about these Rams jerseys <laughs> for a minute because they are atrocious. I, I feel like the the designing jerseys is a skill that is often lied about, but never actually like done well. It's like, oh yeah, I can do that, sure, no big deal, and and it just it, it's failed miserably. I mean, Atlanta's jerseys are a dumpster fire. The Rams redesign is terrible. Um, the Browns isn't too bad. Um, but it just feels like it's but they're just coming, failure after the failure. The Browns are coming from what was a terrible redesign not right. long ago, right? Like, yeah. And, and that's those are the ones that always confuse me a little bit. Is like teams like the the Browns, um, and then even the the Rams, the jerseys that they just had, the uniforms that they had when they finally went back to like the the they old were great. colors, they were excellent. It was a lot, honestly, like the Niners most recent update when they went back to like a, a modernized version of the old school uniforms. Right. Yeah. Um, it was like a very similar thing to that. The only thing that they probably needed to do was change the helmet again to like match the blue with the helmet to the blue that they went to there. But you have like a classic good looking uniform. Why do you need to fuck with that and start putting like gradients and shit in there? It's like, it's insane. I get it if like the Bucks, you know, if you're the Bucks, you don't have like a great, like everybody kind of likes the creamsicle ones now uh, or whatever, but you don't have like a great classic uniform that everybody just like really associates with you. Like, sure, tinker away, like, you know, find something that's going to fit you. But when you're a team like the Rams or somebody like that's been around forever and you have a great classic uniform, like just fucking stick with it. Now, it's been a week, and not just because of jersey releases, but because we, we've got a, a trolling of epic proportions. Did you catch this on, on Reddit and on, on the Twitters about the Packers fan that completely convinced basically the entire city of Seattle <laughs> that Miles Garrett was being traded to the Seahawks? I, I caught the highlights on, on Reddit. I did not dive too deep. Um, mostly saw it and shook my head. Um, it's it's so phenomenal. Funny. I mean, you, you've got someone who basically is friends of a friend with an offensive lineman in Seattle, said that that offensive lineman was going to get cut. Turns out it happens just a few hours later. He parlays that now that everyone believes him and he's built just that much credibility into trolling the Seattle Seahawks, both Reddit uh, into thinking that like you, oh you, you're gonna you're never gonna believe what player's gonna get traded this that and the other Every, he builds up a fervor, a radio station in Seattle picks oh, it up no. calls him, 
and and interviews him. And and the best part is that you get this wonderful sound clip from this radio station as a result. Coming up now. Now joining us on the uh, on the Beacon Plumbing Hotline. Uh, our new Seahawks insider, I love nudes. And again, that's with a Z. Let's just stop right there. The dude's name, he doesn't give them his real name. He gives them his screen name. And it's everyone loves nudes. And and they just go with it. And so he drops the the Miles Garrett knowledge or the Miles Garrett fake thing. And everyone's like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And he doesn't tell them it's fake at this point. They, they think legit that they have a scoop. And they tweet about it and the whole thing happens. And then at the very end of the interview, you just get this gem. Everyone loves nudes. Thank you. Everyone loves nudes. Which I- so yeah, so it's been a week. It's been a week. But the, the other thing that happened is the, the schedule was released. You've got now your 2020 season schedule. And the first question I've got, David, do you, do you think they're actually going to be able to kick off week one in September as planned? Because that seems to be a pretty big caveat as to whether or not this is going to happen. Uh, it, it seems pretty ambitious to me. I, I have a tough time imagining football in September. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just me, but yeah, it it seems like, uh, I mean, you have the NBA that isn't even considering really like the, the most likely open for them is around Christmas time, right? It is kind of like where they're thinking that they might kick things off. Um, I don't know. September seems early. I I think that we will get football in some form, but I think it's going to be, uh, unlike the 17 week schedule that they just released. Now, for the 49ers, there are a couple of interesting tidbits from the schedule. Let's first talk about the the potential COVID impact. And and one is that Arizona has allowed teams to play, I think, in the next couple of weeks. May 15th is when baseball can resume in Arizona. The Niners and the Cardinals do not share a home game weekend over the course of the entire season. So the, the thing that's been bantied about is that the Niners could play at the Arizona Stadium, the weekends that the Cardinals don't play. And the players would probably be okay with that because one quirk of the way that the NFL pays its players is that they, play, that they tax them based on the state income tax in which they play, not based on where they reside. So if, so if, if the Niners play a game in New York, they get taxed New York. If they, they play in Arizona, they don't, they don't get taxed, right? So right. Richard Sherman's like, look, if there's, no, there's going to be no fans there, might as well play in Arizona and not pay that state income tax for the home games anyway. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting situation, but I think the players are probably going to support playing in some way, shape, or form. I don't know if... if that's the smartest decision, but I think that's probably the, the likely outcome. Sure. Yeah, I think the the smartest de- decision and then what actually happens are probably not going to be aligned, but I don't know. We'll see. Now, when you look at the schedule, it looks pretty straightforward. I mean, we knew all of the opponents, but the order of the opponents does matter. Schedule is indeed real. Your schedule does impact, I think, how likely you are to make it to the postseason just because of the randomness of how the schedule works out. Usually, you've got backloaded divisional games. I thought they were going to backload divisional games this year just because of the whole COVID thing, where maybe you've got, uh, if you're an NFC team, all your AFC games early on, so they have less of an impact on the Super Bowl, the final standings. And so you think to yourself, okay, then all the divisional games are backloaded in case games have to get canceled. But the divisional games are intermingled kind of a, almost everywhere, really. Yeah. Um, but you've got this, this middle stretch between week seven and week 10. And the Niners are familiar with tough stretches, but week seven at New England, week eight 
at Seattle. Week 9 versus Green Bay. Week 10 at New Orleans. So you've got four games. Three of them are away against four teams that are good or have just been very good, with the caveat, of course, being the Patriots. With Who the hell knows what's going to happen with, with good old Mr. Stidham. Yeah. But that's, that's a pretty rough stretch there in the middle of the season that could be where the season tilts for the 49ers. I'm not going to lie. It took me a few tries looking at it to recognize that the Patriots that they would be playing don't have Tom Brady on it. Like it's still like, obviously mentally I know that Tom Brady plays for the bucks now, but when I saw the schedule, like there had been enough time there between where I was like, Oh shit. Yeah. The Patriots, like that's going to be a tough game. And then I was like, Oh wait, Brady's not going to be there. Like that might, it's gonna, That makes it a little bit better, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely the stretch, right? If, if things kind of go to plan, right now that is and and it could be worse right depending on what version of the rams you get because that four game stretch is sandwiched with rams games and so you know if they bounce back a little bit and and are a little bit better this year you know that could be a really brutal run there right in the middle of the season that, that could have a chance to really make or break their their year and their divisional like their ultimate standing for playoff picture and whatnot yeah, ultimate games I'm circling on the schedule when I look at them are really that game against the Saints. That's going to be a big one. The game against Green Bay. And really the game against Cowboys. I think those three games are going to be very interesting for the 49ers in 2020. The two Arizona games are going to be interesting as well. It's going to be a season opener against Arizona. So you know Arizona is going to bring a bag of tricks to the 49ers. And of course, it wouldn't be an NFL season without a Week 17 game between the Niners <laughs> and the Seattle Seahawks. So schedule's out we'll see what happens at least on the front end but overall um do you, do you think the schedule lines up to be easier the same or harder than 2019 i mean i would guess easier gotta love playing the east both the east divisions um i mean an, an afc east that no longer has tom brady looks very nice um and you know the nfc east could potentially have some good teams in there but they always kind of all find a way to be largely mediocre and and not all that good so i think yeah as far as like the out of division games that you get uh, you run into i mean you're you're playing some first place teams in there nfc wise you know having to play against green bay and new orleans but i think the the matchups you get elsewhere with those eastern divisions is uh, more than makes up for it i put a commercial in there maybe all right, well, let's get to the bulk of the episode this week. It's going to be a mailbag. Most of these questions are going to come from our Patreon subscribers, so thank you if you are a patron. Your questions are going to be featured here heavily. We've also taken a couple from Twitter as well because uh, we always get some good stuff from Twitter. That's where a lot of our fans are, are hanging out. And so they're going to be really bulked into a couple of areas. One is going to be questions that are a bit retrospective, taking a look back. The other cluster of questions is going to be around the roster. And then we're going to have a couple of questions uh, that's just going to round out some fun stuff. And then we'll, we'll call it a day. Um, but you've got the first question out of the bat, which I think is actually really interesting. This comes from Travis Howell. Uh, what does Shanahan need to learn from 2019 and apply to 2020? I think it's that he needs to be more aggressive. Um, and not in some of those big moments, you know, that like we saw, uh, in, in the Super Bowl and stuff where he essentially kind of goes to being conservative and kind of playing this not to lose style. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, last year, and it's not that, you know, necessarily that's a, a bad decision a hundred percent of the time. I think there are games and situations where 
taking more of that kind of approach when you're kind of clearly the better team, right? You can kind of take a more conservative, let's shorten the game. Like we're just a, a more talented team than they are. And we should be able to, to kind of win games that way and, and not have to rely too much on like being aggressive in key situations. Cause it's ultimately not going to matter, but in those games against competition that is equal or better to, to the team that you've got, right. Like we had in, in the Super Bowl. I think you need to learn to be more aggressive and kind of take more chances and be more aggressive on fourth downs and, and just kind of your overall approach on offense and not, uh, keep that like we're going to lay back and try to shorten the game type of style yeah i think it's interesting when when you think of any games where that was really a thing it wasn't tested often because yeah. the niners just rolled up those leads and and this is i think the probably one of the more difficult lessons to learn just because he, he it didn't come across his desk often it wasn't a decision he had to employ too many times this past season but i think the lesson is is probably offensive focus, but it really is that you've got to, um, it's similar, I guess it's, it's dovetails the whole idea of you've got to be aggressive, but it's, it's that the passing game is king. And, and I can't imagine that's not a lesson that he already knows or, or that he doesn't somehow feel as an offensive guy at his core. Right. But, but I do feel like he, it's not just lip service when he says, you know, you, everything is set up by the run and this, that, and the other. And it's like, I mean, yeah, but the, the run sets up what? It sets up the passing game. And, and it doesn't matter how strong your defense is. It doesn't matter how strong your defensive line is. The Niners are the chief example of how you can have one of the best defenses in the league, if not maybe the best defense in the league. And Atlanta can still beat you because they can march down the field and score. And you still lose a Super Bowl because you've got, you're going up against a really, really good quarterback. I think Richard Sherman last week said, someone was talking, the whole Jimmy Garoppolo not being, you know, potentially not being good thing was out in the sphere. And, and I think Richard Sherman very, very intelligently pointed out, yeah, the defense actually let, you know, let quote unquote, the, the chief score. It's like, yeah, because offenses are going to score. Yep. And, and so ultimately you're going to get to a point where you're going to have to score more points and, and that's what you can control. That's what's consistent year to year. And, and I think that Shanahan in terms of bolstering the passing game, in terms of getting Brandon Ayuk, uh, in terms of upgrading potentially the offensive line at the right guard spot. I do think he understands that. I do think he's trying to apply some of that lesson to 2020. Yeah. I, I think the, the point about like not having to do it a whole lot um, is, is a good one because it does make it tough, right? A lot of times you need to kind of have that thrown in your face a little bit as a coach, you know, to, to really see it and be able to like identify this as something that I need to change. But when it, even if your process isn't necessarily great, if you're getting good outcomes from that, it's you're going to keep doing it, right? Like you, you don't really see anything there that you need to change, I think, for at least a lot of these coaches. And so, um, yeah, it, hopefully, you know, you don't want them to be in a situation where it blows up in their face because that means things are going poorly. But it is a lesson that I, I do think he needs to learn. And if he can, the 49ers are going to be much better off for it. All right, next question comes from Robert. In which area do you think the Niners overperformed last year and how much of a regression do you expect in 2020? Oh, I think the secondary is 100% the area for me. Um, yeah, it's that defense. Yeah, I mean, I think the defense as a whole, right? Like obviously going from one of the worst defenses in the NFL in 2018 to, um, you know, likely the best defense in the NFL last season is such a huge, huge jump. And so the overall defensive performance is always going to be very likely to come down in that situation, right? Even if they're still very good, 
the difference between the top defense in the NFL and just even the eighth or ninth or 10th best defense in the NFL is still a pretty large gap. Right. And I, and so I think that you see potentially that type of fall um, where they, they kind of drop back to the pack a little bit. Uh, And I think that largely does come from the secondary performance. So all of the attention went to the defensive line last year because of all the resources that they devoted to it. But the secondary making the leap that they did um, and having, you know, really where you didn't make any sort of moves to address that position in the offseason, right? You had a couple of throwaway moves, late free agency, things like that. But in large part, the guys that suited up for you last year were the guys, the same guys that were completely terrible in 2018. And so um, I think that that's the area if they you know do end up kind of falling back to the pack a little bit that's the area that's going to be hurt the most and i think we see that maybe some of those guys didn't take a leap that really is going to stick and and ends up being kind of more of a one-year wonder type thing so i think when we talk about regression in terms of the defense because i do think the defense is going to regress regression doesn't mean be bad you can regress from being one of the top two defenses in the league to being a top eight defense, which is still really good. I mean, having a top 10 defense is what I think a lot of teams would love to have. But that difference, like you said, between the second best defense or even the best defense in the NFL and the eighth best defense can end up being the difference in one or two wins. And one or two wins in 2019 is home field or you're playing in the wild card. Yep. It's, it's, it, that, that is where the margins get really, really small. You know, I, I'm reminded of the 2011 team. Because the last time that we talked about the plexiglass, the, the, the plexiglass, it's going to be difficult for me to speak today. I just had uh, the, the first part of the crown thing uh, at the dentist office. The, the Novocaine just wore off. Um, that's probably going to be the cold open. Exactly. My wife, made, my wife made me record that uh, just for you. She's doing it for you. Even, <laughs> even my wife is looking out for you listeners. But the, the 2011 team had that big leap, both in wins and in performance on offense, and specifically defense. And in DVOA, I remember us talking about how they jumped to 2012. We're going to see a regression. And the 2012 team made it to the Super Bowl, where the 2011 team didn't. And, and so I think a lot of people would say, okay, like if you're buoyed by the fact that this team is creating a sustainable model for a team that can continue off of you know year one and then in and plus one in the next year actually get farther in the whole the whole dance right actually win the super bowl and not lose the super bowl that may be where you look and i don't know that the 2020 secondary or the 2020 defense is built quite like the 2011 2012 defense in terms of the secondary players but we know that secondary play from year to year you know, is variable, right? So I'm not sure, but I, I do think that it is going to be, that's definitely where they overperformed and that's definitely where they're going to regress. Yeah, I, and I think the other point on onto that, right, is just because they maybe regress a little bit in that area doesn't mean they can't improve in other areas and still end up better on the whole, right? So if, if you have that scenario where the defense does fall back a little bit, the secondary plays more middle of the pack and you're looking at a, a defense that's, you know, eight to 10 or something like that they can still be a better team overall if the offense takes a step forward, right? If if the offense is better, Jimmy G is better, Ayuk comes in and, and tears things up as a rookie and, and really solidifies that receiving group, you get one or two of the young guys, you know, outside of the kind of core 
um, piece of Debo, Ayuk, and, and Kittle that we kind of hope is like the trio that really leads the passing game. Maybe you get one or two other guys that have a good a good year and kind of like add a fourth or fifth option to the table there and put things together from a passing game standpoint. The benefit that you get from that can outweigh any sort of regression from uh, the secondary or the defense, right? So I think all of those things need to be considered in, in terms of saying, like, we're, we're not just saying that like, the defense is going to be worse and the 49ers are going to suck next year, right? There's a lot of pieces at play there, and, and they can be, be a better team or just as good of a team and still have some of these things happen. Yeah, and the defense can regress, and the schedule can just be easier. Yep. And, and because the schedule is a little easier, they end up winning the same number of games um, and maybe get a, a similarly easy path to the Super Bowl as they did in 2019. So lots of things on the table, but I do think if, if 2019, the, the story was the team is going to be taken as far as the defense, I think in 2020, it's really going to be how is the offense going to build off of a solid campaign, but a campaign where more may have to rely on their shoulders just because of the nature of defense. Now, Andrew asks, and this is going to be the last question in the retrospective area. Uh, Andrew asks, in four years, we've drafted zero interior offensive linemen. In fact, we've drafted more punters than interior <laughs> offensive linemen. Uh, really, that's, that cuts at the core of David's soul. But I, knew, I, know, I know Andrew's putting it in there just for you. He's a trigger warning for you, David. Is this, a, is this a coincidence? Does Shanahan not value interior O-linemen highly? Does he feel like he can develop tackles into guards? What's going on here? Andrew, I really do think you've answered your question in the middle of the question. Yep. Shanahan does not value interior guards as much as he values tackles and centers, both from a team-building perspective in different stops. When you think of how he built his team in Atlanta, he went out and got Alex Mack. Uh, when you think about what he did with the 49ers, he went out and tried to get a center that he thought could run a system as soon as he could. And, and he really, he's going after tackles. He believes in drafting tackles highly, not necessarily interior linemen. The, he does understand, at least from the construction of an offense, that you have to spend money in some places. And it's pretty clear he thinks those places are tackle, center, quarterback. And if you've got a wide receiver who's an elite wide receiver, then wide receiver. But you don't necessarily need to pay top dollar for a wide receiver. You can platoon that a little bit. Yep. And unfortunately, maybe running back. But you, that, that's where he values. And, and honestly, I, I don't think he's wrong. He's really not just because of the way, the, the, the way centers and guards play together your, your guard and your center they're, they're going to get help on that interior it's usually three against two um as opposed to tackles which are more on an island and uh, and so I, I do think he's right and I, I do think it's a smart way of approaching the, the the team building of an offense is understanding that you can't pay everyone so you got to prioritize something and i think he's prioritizing the right bits right yeah the the can't pay everyone thing is is a big point there like obviously in a perfect world um, you would love to have great players at every single position, right? And it just oftentimes doesn't work that way. And so you have to prioritize certain things. And I think when you look at the offensive line specifically, the tackles are important for, I think, uh, I hope obvious reasons, right? Tackle is definitely the most important position on the offensive line. I think league-wide that is the case, and, and pretty much everybody puts a premium on good players at those positions. And so now, especially in today's NFL, you want to have two good ones um, be, to be able to be good pass protectors for your quarterback. So you start there, and then for him, from the run game specifically, is where the center becomes a little bit more of a priority over the guards, right? I think the center in this scheme that that runs a ton of wide zone um, has some difficult blocks that the center needs to be able to make, and he needs to be able to, uh, you know, have good movement skills and be able to reach these defensive linemen and linebackers and, and really take 
um, some tough angles to get to a lot of these blocks. So I think that's why he values that position a little bit more so than guard. And then I think, you know, at, at guard at that point, you're just trying to get some competent players, right? A lot of times we've talked about offensive line, just needing to be competent at all spots and not necessarily need to be great at all spots, right? As long as you don't have one clear weak link, um, on, on the front, you're usually going to be okay. And I think he's been able to do that. So now let's get to a different cluster of questions when you get to the roster um, as a whole. And, and this question comes from Cully on Twitter. At what point does George Kittle become too rich for your blood? Of course, we know that he's up for a big contract. He is probably the Niners' best player, and he's one the Niners do not want to let get away. But is there a dollar amount that is too much, even for George Kittle, David? Luckily, I think that point is much higher than what he will actually end up getting. Um, so I think when you look at tight end contracts across the league, like they are far less valued than wide receivers, right? So you look at the top wide receivers and what they're getting um, just kind of like per year. The top guys are just over $20 million a year, and then you got kind of another group that's right there in like the 18, 19 range, so to speak, the highest paid tight ends, there's only two tight ends that are even making $10 million per year on average. Which is really surprising to me. It's surprising that, well, one, it's surprising to see Austin Hooper at the top of this list because he (laughs) shouldn't be there. Um, But the other is that you look at the average per year, it's not very high. I was expecting more like 13, 14, 15 in that top area for the Kelseys of the world, for the Ertz of the world. And and no, I mean, their average year, their average salary per year is like 9 million, 8 million. Uh, for Zach Ertz, it's eight and a half million per year. That's palatable. That's, yeah, that's a that's a damn steal. And I think it comes from the fact that like the there aren't very many good tight ends, unfortunately. So the average tight end isn't doing a whole lot for your team, right? Isn't giving you a ton of value there. Um, and and so there's as a position group, not necessarily a highly valuable group. But if you can get one of the top, you know, few guys, you know, if you can be one of those like handful that can actually make a difference. And I think with Kittle, like you're not talking about just one of the handful, you're talking about very likely the best tight end in football and, and a, a player that is adding value on a level closer to that of a receiver, like of a, a top end receiver than he is um, your typical tight end, right? He's closer to the receivers on that spectrum. And so I think from a pay standpoint, he can get closer to them on that pay scale and not be, you know, too rich. Right. So I think ideally they can use the depressed tight end market to kind of still get him for somewhat of a bargain. Right. If they can get him in the, the like, I don't know, low mid teens in that 14, 15 range or something like that. Like, I think that's excellent, but it doesn't really become a point where I'm concerned about it until you're getting into that like 18, 19, $20 $20 million range where it's like, okay, I don't know if he's quite adding the same sort of value that you're getting from the very best wide receivers in the league. But that's the type of thing that, that you would have to go before you even start asking that question. Is George Kittle a better receiving option than say Sterling Shepard, <laughs> who at 26 years old yes. is getting, uh, got a $41 million total contract value uh, contract from the giants and is making just North of 10 million a year. That's why it's interesting to see how much he'll get paid. Because I think if the Niners get away with paying him on average, you know, $12, $13 million a year, that's when you, when you talk about value for production that you get out of that player, I think that's, that's really good. That T.Y. Hilton puts him in that area. Allen Robinson, um, Stefan Diggs is getting 14 and a half, roughly million dollars a year. I think that's where you start getting into 
you know, one where, where he's going to have to continue at his rate in order to get some value out of that contract. But yeah. there, there's nothing, I, I trust in his ability to produce next year and the year after more so than I would uh, some other people just because of his style of play and what he can bring and stuff like that. So I think, I think it's, it's higher than you think in order to get value out of, out of his contract. Yeah, for sure. All right, so Ryan Huffman asks, who are the young players on the roster you think are going to break out? And alternatively, or maybe a spin on the question, who do you think the team needs to break out in order to be a Super Bowl contender again? So I'm going to go back to, you know, kind of touched on uh, a minute ago, but the wide receiver group, um, I think, is the one that definitely the team needs players to break out um, from that group, right? You have Debo, who you feel pretty good about. Um, and then after that, it's a lot of unknown commodities, right? I mean, obviously we're excited about Ayuk and, and what he can potentially bring to the table, but you still have to caveat that with the fact that he's a rookie and, you know, really in, in college, he only had one strong year of production and we don't know what we're going to get from him at the NFL level as optimistic as we may be about that. And so I think the rest of the group at that point is guys that have been around for, you know, two, three years or so, um, and haven't really done a lot. And, and so I think they're kind of viewing this wide receiver group. It feels like, like they did the secondary headed into last season where it's like, we're not going to make necessarily a ton of moves here. We're not going to look to like revamp this group completely. Um, We're going to hope that these young players that we've invested in can like develop a little bit and put it together. Um, And so I think that's kind of the gamble that they're taking um, with that group. And and they absolutely need somebody like Dante Pettis or Jalen Hurd or whoever it is, you know, from that young group to be able to step up and, and break out. Um, as far as who I think will actually do it, I mean, I would put Ayuk is at the top of my list. I think he's the one, maybe it's just because we know the least about him. Um, but also I think he's the guy that has the most talent and, um, is the best fit for what they do offensively. So he would be the guy I'm most optimistic about, but they need someone from that group, I think. Yeah, it was hard to not go with someone like Javon Kinlaw here um, as the player that may break out just because I think players that are going to break out need a nexus of opportunity and skill in order to break out. And so I do think that Kinlaw is one of the more talented players that, that's young, and I think he's going to get a lot of opportunity at a position that's going yeah. to potentially be uh, a very, you know, a, a lined up for a lot of sacks. If the Niners end up getting a big lead and you see teams go back into that got to throw mode, uh, I think he could be lined up to break out. Same thing with Brandon Ayuk. But, you know, I think if I'm thinking of a player that's going to break out that's still relatively young that the team needs in order to, to kind of return to that Super Bowl, uh, honestly, I'm going to go with Emmanuel Mosley. And, and I consider him being young only in as much as he's only got one year of full football under his belt. He was injured his rookie year. He's an undrafted free agent. But I, I do think that Sherman's obviously entrenched at one corner spot. And this rotation between Akella Witherspoon and Emmanuel Mosley, I mean, at the point at which I know I'm sure they're going to open camp with it being a competition and, you know, you want the best out of Akello and this, that, and the other. I, I would say, yeah, you're, you're probably going to hear that lip service. But the, the player that you start in the Super Bowl has got to be the player that's got a leg up. You sure. know what I mean? Especially yeah. going up against the team that you're that, like the Chiefs. Like if you trust him against the Chiefs and he's had some really good games, he's had some really strong uh, defensive pass breakups over the course of the year. If the Niners are going to maintain and reduce that regression on defense, it's going to be because one of their corners steps up. We know what the team has in K1 Williams. We know that Richard Sherman is going to probably hold it down on the other side. And so I think it's probably going to need to be someone like Emmanuel Mosley. Yeah, that's a good call. Uh, all right. Edward Corrette. 
I'd be interested to get your thoughts on the wide receiver battle. Who do you think loses out on what seems to be a crowded field? Do you put your money on Dante Pettis? Go. For him losing out? Uh, well, I guess that's not how I intended it, but sure. Go. <laughs> it, that, that answers the question all the same. Ah, uh, man, I don't know. Um, I, I will say I'm not quite ready to give up on Dante yet, but it obviously doesn't look good. Um, you know, I think it's a, a similar situation to Akello in a lot of ways where he has kind of shown some flashes and then really kind of fell off and we don't really know what we're getting from him. I mean, I, I don't Did know. You, I don't know what to make of that. Guy. I heard, I heard on the, um, on Matt Mayoko's podcast, he had John Lynch on and they were talking about the, the information they got from Will Muschamp at South Carolina and, and how it, everything that he said about Debo Samuel was, was it proved to be true. It was prophetic. There's one thing that I thought was interesting because the, apparently what happened with Dante Pettis was per John Lynch, he did not come to the, the opening season camps in shape and, and that already put him in the doghouse. And, and he didn't really work himself into that kind of role that the team envisioned him. And by middle of the year, he's basically phased out of the office entirely. Well, apparently one of the things that Will Muschamp said about Debo Samuel was that he was likely going to come to camp a little overweight and a little out of shape. And apparently that earned him a bunch of 6 a.m. runs with Wes Welker. And, and th- there has to be something else there, though, because both players come to camp a little out of shape. And yet the trajectory of both players diverged sharply by midseason. Right. And so I, I don't know what the hell is going on there, um, but I do think that I, I'm, I'm probably not putting my money on, on Dante Pettis at this point. I, I, I'd put my yeah. money on Ayuk. I'd put my money on Debo, obviously. He's, I think, the surest bet. If Jalen Hurd is healthy, um, I, I may even put more money on him just because of what I think Shanahan's trying to do in the slot. Um, than I would necessarily on Dante Pettis, which means, hey, maybe Dante Pettis gets back to returning kicks. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I will say that after Debo and Ayuk, those are the two that I feel most confident in, um, for sure, that are going to be quality players. And and after that, I think it's honestly like a, a coin flip. I mean, there, there are maybe some guys that I like a little bit more than others, but certainly nobody that I feel confident enough saying that like, yeah, I think this is going to be the guy that steps up as like the number three option in that group. Right. I think they have a lot of guys who are in a very similar boat. Yeah. We had a lot of fun doing the Juwan Jennings video and that's, that scattering reports up on the Patreon in case you want to take a look at that. I don't know that he makes the team. I think he, unless Jalen Hurd remains injured and can't come back. I do think Juwan Jennings probably ends up uh, on the practice squad. And, and I think that the Trent Taylor may even have a rough time. He may be on the outside looking in, depending on what happens in the slot. He, him and Richie James are both wide receivers that were, were drafted in a mold that I think Shanahan may be trying to move away from. Um, I think he's still looking for some of that lateral agility and size and athleticism, but he's looking at it in a, in a bigger body, like Juwan Jennings or like a Jalen Hurd. Yeah, I mean, maybe. Um, and, you know, I think it's the, it's a tough one because we haven't seen it yet. We haven't seen a big player actually go out there and do anything in the slot for them. And so, uh, you know, they have a couple of players on the roster who fit that mold. But until they actually show it with what they're doing offensively, I think it's hard. So I think that, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if you get a fully healthy Trent Taylor that he can come in and be your slot guy because we know that 
Jimmy likes that type of player um, and is familiar with that yeah. type of player, right, from what they did in New England. And um, obviously they had a really great chemistry during that initial five games when he came over. So because of that, like, I don't think that I can fully rule out somebody like Taylor. But, yeah, again, like, you don't feel confident in any of these guys, and that's kind of where they're at right now. Yeah, I think if the team keeps six, I think you've got three locked down. You've got Ayuk. You've got... um at this point, like I almost went Pettis, but no, I think you've got Debo Samuel, you've got Ayuk, and Kendrick Bourne. I think those are your three kind of you can guarantee they're going to be there. At that point, it's three more. And I think Trent Taylor is going to be one of those guys. And then I think Jalen Hurd. And then it's one spot for whether it be uh, Richie James or Jawan Jennings or Travis Benjamin um, or any of the other players. Get Travis Benjamin out of here. That's the one I feel confident. <laughs> in. He's not doing anything. Um, Sean Poindexter. You don't. You don't think Poindexter's got my, my dude number one? He's got. No. He's got. He doesn't have a shot. No, sorry about it. Uh, similar question from Jimmy Patel. Is there any saving Dante? Yes, but I wouldn't put my money on it, frankly. Um, yeah. And last question here for this is from John Perkins. What's the upside with Brunskill? Um, I think the upside is that you found yourself a quality guard uh, with a swing tackle mentality um, and, and someone who's got some versatility on the line. I don't know that he's going to be like top five guard in the league, but I don't think you need one. I think if you are like above the person line, which is already head and shoulders above the Debbie line, you're, you're in a pretty good spot. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that it's always tough with players like that to talk about like upside because like the most realistic thing that happens with the majority of those type of players is that like at best, they're kind of like a solid reserve player. Maybe they have a few years where they have a decent stretch as a starter or something like that. But um, you know, it's always tough to say like, Oh yeah, this guy's going to be like a quality tackle, you know, and be like a legitimately good NFL tackle that, that is uh, someone that is, player people are going to want to pay or something like that, give a decent contract to or something like that. So like that, that's just never the most likely outcome with this type of player. But um, yeah, I, I think he is solid. Like he's played well in a limited stretch. Like he's definitely deserved a roster spot. Um, and, and is somebody that you can like potentially count on to play multiple spots and not be terrible. Yeah. I think that you're, you're hoping to end up with a, a quality starting interior lineman um, but if all Daniel Brunskill ends up becoming is a swing tackle that can come in for three, four, five games a year, there's still some serious value in that. Yep. And the Niners needed that uh, multiple times over the course of 2019, and it helped get them to a Super Bowl. So tackles uh, and having tackles, having players that can do that is something that not a lot of teams have, but a lot of teams want. So I, I don't know that we've seen necessarily the, the peak of Brunskill's upside, but or the peak of his upside, but... I do think that he can be a quality starter in the league. All right, let's get to the fun stuff. Two questions in the fun stuff area. One from Kazu Greenwood. In a time-traveling situation, if you could select one member from the 19 to 2020 team to help the 12-13 Niners win their Super Bowl, who would it be and why? And vice versa, one member from the 12-13 squad to help the Niners beat the Chiefs. Let's start with sending someone from the 1920s uh, from this Super Bowl squad over to the 12 to 13 squad. Who would it, who would it be? Oh man. Um I think it's got to be Richard Sherman, right? Yeah, so that's where I went too and the the question here is whether or not removing him or or adding him to the Niners 
in their Super Bowl year also removes him from the Seattle team, like, or are we dealing with a time cop situation where they both exist in that alternate past and they just can't physically touch each other because then they would have caused some kind of implosion that would, you know, send a ripple in the space time continuum. Like these are the types of questions that I immediately went to. And and I thought to myself, yeah, it's gotta be Richard Sherman, but, but what does that do if they potentially shake hands on the field? Do we just see a cataclysmic event that ends all of football? I don't know. I'm reading this as a one game situation. So I'm not reading this as like going back and you get Richard Sherman for the entire season and lead up to the Super Bowl. I'm thinking like just you put him in the Super Bowl game. Like what is the player who makes the difference that helps them win that game is kind of more. Man, but then does he does he know the playbook? Does he have experience? Yeah, man, you're going to assume that all that stuff is is fine (laughs) in this like fake bullshit reality Ain't getting too real with it. I, I think like look, so you, you go back to the, the, the twenty twelve team and obviously the front was stacked. So like while maybe you can get a marginal upgrade, like okay, you take Nick Bosa and you put him as the other uh you basically replace him uh replace Ahmad Brooks, right? And you have him and Alden Smith as your edge rushers. Does that make you better? Yes, but like does it make a significant impact? I I don't know. Um, so I think like the, the secondary to me is probably the spot for that team that you could stand to make the biggest leap, like same thing kind of with Kittle, right? Like, do I think Kittle last year is a better player than Vernon Davis ever was, especially during that? Like, yes, I think that his peak is definitely better than Vernon Davis, but Vernon Davis was really fucking good that year. So it's like, how much better are you actually getting by putting Kittle in there? Yeah, I think it's Sherman. Yeah, and you also had, so you think to yourself, well, then maybe you've got, you know, two tight ends that you can roll with, but I mean, the Niners had that in the Super Bowl. I mean, Delaney Walker in that 2012 year was just as good and was one of the reasons why they were able to make that Super Bowl. So I think adding a third tight end at that point doesn't lift you a whole hell of a lot. Um, I do think there might be an argument for a wide receiver. Yeah, that's the other back spot someone. I thought. Yeah, because Crabtree, would, that was the one year where he was actually pretty good. But it would be nice to have another wide receiver on the on the other side of him. Although you've got you got Randy Moss, who was the I mean, you know back for one year, but it was a shell of Randy, Randy Moss. Moss. Yeah, yeah, it, it was a shell of Randy Moss. And so I, I do think sending back a wide receiver, and if you do send back a wide receiver, uh, then you send back Emmanuel Sanders. Do you send back Sanders or do you send back Samuel? I think you send back Debo. I think you put Debo in what they were doing on offense um, that year. Like if you can. They obviously were willing to make adjustments for that season for what Kaepernick was doing and, and you know, everything that they were doing with the pistol that we loved and, and all of that. Like, I think if you can add a player like Debo Samuel in the mix there, like that is potentially very good for them. So, yeah, he's he's the one that I would look at. All right. So the other way, who do we take from the 20, uh, 2012 team and bring them to the, the one thing that, sorry, the one quick aside, the one thing that always confuses me and that I really dislike about football years is that the Super Bowl is not in the same damn year as the season. So it's the, the 12 year, the, the season that's 2012, the 2013 Super Bowl. No, nobody um, calls just, it the 2013. It's the 2012 Super yeah. Bowl. This isn't basketball, right? Basketball has like, what, legitimately half their season split between years. So you got you to gotta list both numbers. Like the NFL, no, you go with the, the year that the season was played in. Like everybody knows that the Super Bowl was played technically the next year, but it's the 2012 season. Get the 13 out of here. All right. I'm, tell, I'm talking to you, Kazu Greenwood. None of this 13 in there. Let's talk, let's talk about the 2012 team and the 2019 team. <laughs> exactly. All right, so who do we take from 2012 to 2019? So um, 
It's got to be I, Alex Smith, right? I, I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, offensively, I don't know that you're taking anybody from the 2012 offense and getting better. Like, I, I think in a lot of ways, like, their limitations were very similar, right? So I don't know that there's anybody that stands out from the 2012 offense that you're putting in there and going to be, like – noticeably better right like at best you could say like oh let me take 2012 joe staley and replace 2019 joe staley i'm gonna get you know a little bit better player there like that's maybe the best that you could do so i think you got to go defense um again defensive line i don't think that you're doing a whole lot to upgrade there uh i think you got to look at at linebacker linebacker is the obvious spot i don't know that it ends up making a huge difference in this game unfortunately but um i'm taking patrick willis and i think he's the guy that that i would put that makes the biggest jump from the players that they had defensively to like, obviously what he was. Yeah. I, I actually think that it's offensive line and I think you end up with a young Mike Upati or even Mike Alex Upati is not running this zone scheme. Mikey, Upati I know it'd be tough. And that's, excellent. I look at you and I'm like, you're right. But, and, but you know what? I don't, I don't think that Alex Boone would be too out of place in something like this. No way, I, I just think of the, the tip passes. I think of Chris Jones. I think, you know, if, if maybe you can upgrade person a little bit, that's because that, I think you're right that the offense is not going to get upgraded. Mario Manningham is not going to make this offense better. No. <laughs> so okay. I do think that if, if you're looking offense, it's got to be someone along the interior. Uh, and, and that leaves your two guards. And I mean, you probably did move pretty well for a big dude uh, back in the day, but he was still a very, very massive individual. Yeah, I, I can't see like that was what made me go away from offensive line other than like, you know, basically joking about Staley is that uh, the schemes are so different and what they wanted from those offensive linemen are so different. Like you potty and Boone and even Anthony Davis were so good on that offensive line because they ran that like downhill power scheme. And it was all about just like latching onto a dude and sending him backwards, right? And then just, like, driving him backwards, essentially. And they were fucking excellent at that. But they, I, I can't see a world where they would go into a zone scheme and be able to, like, do anything well. I think they would, they would actually make them potentially worse. Would Deshaun Goldson have been an upgrade given his speed uh, along the back end and given his ability to cover ground? Not, not, not instead of Jimmy Ward, but rather instead of Jaquaski Tart. Man, yeah, that's a close one. Um, Because I think for that season, right, like, again, Deshaun Goldson was like, you know, the the time where he was a good player was pretty limited. Like, it was a short window. Um, But he was pretty fucking good that year. But that was the window. Um, Like, that's the window window you're looking through. Yeah. I don't know. I I think, um, I don't know that it's a big enough difference that I would, like, I I just imagine, like, uh, putting Willis there with Warner and, like, that's the spot that you're going to make the most significant upgrade, I think. Like, I just don't know that, like, anywhere else you might get marginal upgrades. Linebacker, you know, was the weakest part of that defense by a wide margin, I think. And so that's the spot where the 49ers in 2012 were the strongest, right, having Willis and Bowman. Um, Willis, I think was still the better player at that point. And so, yeah, I think I'm, that's, that's where I'm going. I've tried to put, I've tried to poke holes in your answer, Newman, and, uh, you've convinced me. I've not been able to, to unseat that answer. I think it is the best one. That's, yeah. That is indeed the right answer. All right, let's get to the last question in the mailbag from Benjamin H. Imagine that you were stuck in a quarantine for the next calendar year. You can only watch the games and highlights of one of the following 49ers teams and no other football whatsoever. Which of the following would you choose? 
a, and this is multiple choice, by the way. You can't just like pick a team. The, the 2004 team, oh the 2007 God. team, what? the 2010 team, Although you have, he adds the caveat that for this you have to watch it next to a rueful Jimmy Ray the third or Jimmy Ray the second, sorry, or the 2016 team. So basically, you know the the grab bag of crap Niner teams at this point. What in the shit kind of question is this? <laughs> what what are you trying to do? Is kill myself an option? It was this or one of the many running back questions I got to get you to end the pod in the moment. I figured this would be God, uh, a question that wouldn't elicit an immediate end of the pod. For the next calendar year? Like, these teams <laughs> are terrible. Uh, yeah, 2007 was the Ken Dorsey team. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I believe the, 2000, the 2017 was also the year where the Niners ended their shutout streak. Like, they hadn't been shut out in some ungodly amount of years, like 11 years or whatever the case may be, or sometimes since like the 80s. And, and then they were shut out in, against Seattle, I think, in 2007 because that team was so trash. Um, but yeah, I mean, 2010, you've got pants on the ground, Mike Singletary. I mean, that was the 2010 team was probably the best team. Um, they had the best record of any of those teams. And obviously we know what they were able to do once they got a competent coach in the next year with like largely the same core um, of that 2010 team. So, I mean, that, that's the best one. Um, but God, but then I got to watch it with Jimmy Ray. Like what kind of fucked up question is this? See, um, I, I would probably end up watching it next to Jimmy Ray because I mean, the dude would probably just fall asleep false. Cause that's, <laughs> <laughs> um, but then every now and again, you could poke him and be like, yo, like, what were you thinking there? What made sense there? What was the call there? At least you could gain a little bit of extra insight there you from go. that 2010 team. I would take out all of my anger and aggression that I am having to watch these games. I would just take them out on Jimmy Ray. And I would just like fucking yell at him. Be like, what the fuck were you doing here? That is elder abuse, David. Elder just, abuse. It's just Not verbal, okay. so it's fine. <laughs> verbal abuse is fine. Okay. <laughs> oh, God. oh, goodness. Well, that about does it for this week's edition of the Better Rivals podcast. Tune in the next couple of weeks. I think we were, we may take next week off, but the week after that, we're going to come with the rewatch series where we're going to watch some of the fun games, our favorite games that were pre-pod and break them down with a, a more modern lens. And I think we're going to start with the 2011 Saints game, which is going to be a lot of fun. It's a game I always forget was just before the podcast started, but that's where we're going to start with the rewatch series. We'll also have a video on patreon as well that breaks down some of the plays that we'll talk about so you'll get some of those on video as well so make sure to tune in over the next couple of weeks uh, and thanks again for tuning in this week uh, you can always follow me on twitter at better rivals david where can they follow you that'll be at pff underscore david thanks again for tuning in as always go niners <laughs>